Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. On today's show, I have someone who enjoys speaking about toxins even more than I do. Welcome, Laura Adler. The fastest way for chemicals to enter our bodies outside of an ejection is through inhalation. And these are chemicals that we're breathing in every single day, all day, every day. This is a little bit of a hard one sometimes because we love our home ambiance and like smells like peaches and cream or whatever. Do like a scent detox. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That was a hard one for me, actually, because I was one of those women that was addicted to all the plugins, all the sprays. And to be honest, now I really can't even walk past the store in the mall that sells all these things. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Those products contain, among other things, volatile organic compounds and benzenes and toluenes, and these are carcinogens, which are also just not great to be around. They're also utilizing phthalates, a very well-established endocrine disruptor. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journeys Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. The holidays are just around the corner, and for those who are struggling with infertility, this can be a really stressful time. You know the time when all the family gatherings come up, all the parties at work, all those intrusive questions, tons of unsolicited advice, pregnancy announcements, and loads of those family cards in the mailbox. Unfortunately, this can bring up a lot of negative emotions, and it can leave you anxious about seeing your friends and family during the holidays. There are so many different ways to help deal with the stress and anxiety during the holidays, and some of you may already have ways that help you. Today, I'm going to give some suggestions that I hope you find useful during this difficult season. First off, I want to say it is okay to say no to going to holiday gatherings. Some holiday gatherings may make you more uncomfortable than others, so you know which ones those are. Be choosy with where you go. You do not have to say yes just because it's family. Go where you feel comfortable. Number two, I think it's really important to communicate your feelings with your partner. Now, your partner might not fully understand the anxiety that it brings up to have over a sister who perhaps is someone who asks a lot of questions that are personal and can be very triggering. And I think it's good to be honest and let them know what happens when family comes over or this particular family member. And this would be a time for them to step in and speak with that family member and help them understand the boundaries that you have. And this is where we came to number three, setting boundaries. So setting boundaries with friends or family members is really important. And know that it is okay for you to say no to answering any questions. 
You can always say, I'm sorry, that's personal. I'd rather not talk about it. That's off limits. Number four, social media is another place that you can find very triggering, especially during the holidays. Give yourself permission to unfollow, mute, any accounts that you find triggering during the holidays or limit your social media use altogether. Number five, focus on building holiday traditions with your partner. And I know often those who are dealing with infertility, we're waiting for our own families to start holiday traditions. And it can be a really tough time because you've been planning to start certain things when you get pregnant. And so I think it's really important to create traditions between you and your partner during this time and not be waiting to create those special moments. And number six, the one that I think is the most important thing is take time for self-care. The holidays is a time when we are constantly doing things for other people, buying gifts, wrapping gifts, shopping for other people, cooking for other people, hosting parties, going to parties, and it can be really exhausting. One of the most important things when you're on the fertility journey is not forgetting to take care of yourself. And the holidays is the time where most commonly people don't take care of themselves. So it's even more important that you do it now. Now, Self-care can come in so many different forms and you know the things that recharge your battery. That could be getting movement in during the day, exercise, yoga, spending time outdoors, doing certain sporting activities that you enjoy, meditating, journaling, arts and crafts, whatever your thing is, and you know what that is, the thing that you aren't doing these days because you have become so focused on fertility, right? So focused, so many doctor's appointments that you've kind of lost the things that you love. And so I think it's really important to do the things you love. And then this also takes me back to creating holiday traditions with your partner. It's really important to do things that you and your partner love to do together. Thank you for joining me today. Please practice self-compassion and patience with yourself this holiday season. I hope that you found some of these suggestions helpful. On today's show, I have someone who enjoys speaking about toxins even more than I do. She's an environmental toxins expert and educator and a certified health coach who teaches health professionals how to teach their clients and patients about the dangers of environmental toxins. As you know, I'm really passionate about toxins, but Laura has even more passion than I do about this topic. She has worked in this field for years, scouring the research, and she does a wonderful job of breaking things down on this episode. Welcome, Laura Adler. Thank you so much. You are 100% right. I actually don't know that many other people that like talking about this with a smile on their face, right? For because sure. It's a downer topic, right? <laughs> it is a downer topic um, for sure. And yet somehow I am able to do it with a smile on my face. The topic is so heavy. How did you decide to get into this line of work? The short answer is I didn't see anybody else doing it at the time. The longer answer is I discovered this whole area of environmental health on accident. It wasn't intentional. I know a lot of people tend to move into the health space professionally because they've had their own health challenge that they've had to overcome. And then that inspires them to 
go out and help other people. And that wasn't at all my story. I was always interested in health and wellness and nutrition and food and that. I was like one of those foodie farmer's market people and taking cooking classes at the local cooking schools and all that stuff. And had a whole other career and a whole other industry and decided at a certain point to let me see if I can maybe flex this headship that I have for like nutrition and health professionally. And so I sought out health coaching. I thought that might be a good sort of boots on the ground way to help people with really simple lifestyle things that can help with their health. And in doing that, I had clients that came to me mostly for weight loss. Most of the ones that came to me for that, they did all the things, they lost some weight. Great. And then I had one or two clients that they did all the things and like their Mm -hmm. weight didn't budge. And I felt, well, I should probably figure this out. So I started figuring it out. And that is really what cracked the door open into this entire area of environmental health. I was reading and learning about chemicals and how they're able to interfere with metabolism in ways that can mess with our weight. And so outrage is really what spurred me into this space. And starting that many years ago, it really was kind of newish. I don't want to say new. Obviously, there's research that goes back further than that. But right now we're starting to see it come into mainstream. So it wasn't really at all in the mainstream when you were starting. It it wasn't. Definitely the research was out there or some of the research was out there. The research in this field has absolutely exploded in the last decade. The dialogue has changed. It's become more visible. And I think that's wonderful. And we still have a lot of work to do. I agree. Why do you think it took so long for us to see that come out in the mainstream? Because there's just years of research there before we even brought it to mainstream. I think there's a lot of different reasons why. I think first and foremost, the internet and our comfort with the internet and the way in which we're connected to information now. Yeah, sure. We have the internet obviously 10 years ago, but information wasn't quite as prolific. And obviously there's a good and a bad side to that, right? We're drowning in information. It's hard to sift through what's true, what's not true. But I definitely think the internet helped to propel this information forward. I also think that for decades now, many, many decades, corporations have worked really hard to not share information, to suppress information about the ingredients that they use or the products that they manufacture, even though maybe they have in-house data to show that there's harm there. And there's plenty of cases of this, whether it's Johnson & Johnson's talco powder knowing decades ago that there were leaks to cancer or DuPont knowing that the PFAS chemicals that they were manufacturing In the 50s, they had 60s, they had data on health effects. And so they suppressed that information. And in the age of not having internet, right, in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, the 80s, even into the early 90s or mid 90s, I would say, it was a lot easier for companies to get away with being like, shh, it's fine, it's fine, right? Like, how long did it take before we learned that the cigarette industry was suppressing information? It's the same playbook. Right. So they knew that cigarettes caused cancer, but they were like, oh, no, we're going to get doctors to endorse cigarette smoking as being good for you. And so this age of transparency, I think, is part of what's peeling back the curtain on the behavior of manufacturing. We also have more research into how the human body works. And we're starting to look at, or at least you have been looking more closely at how the things in our environment are affecting us. And the more we dig into that sort of minutia, we learn, 
oh, okay, the things that we thought were safe, maybe they're not, maybe we need to reassess that. And so that's what's happening. I think that was really hard for me when I first discovered the research in this topic, because this is not something that you're taught in medical school or in training in medicine. You know, we talk about maybe lead poisoning or something like that, but we're not talking about environmental chemicals. I can't just go into a store and assume everything was safe because that's kind of what I thought. I thought, well, if we go to the store and we purchase this, it's got to be safe, right? Why would they have something on the shelves that's not safe? Can you talk a little bit about regulation or lack of regulation? I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that people have is that assumption that products are safe. You can go to the FDA's website and they'll read in black and white that they're like, we don't require you to test your products for safety. We don't have any regulation that requires that. In general, the regulations in the United States are incredibly weak when it comes to protecting the population from harmful levels of exposure to environmental chemicals. And part of that is because the chemical industry is one of the largest lobby groups in the world. And so they spend a lot of money to pay and pressure politicians to vote for laws that limit regulation because they're like, we're going to self-regulate. We're going to do it. It's okay. But historically, they have a terrible track record of self-regulating. As I even mentioned, Johnson & Johnson, DuPont, right? All these companies have histories of malfeasance and, and suppression of information. Those same organizational bodies are working to pass laws that are in their industry's favor. So the regulations that we have in the United States are very poor when it comes to chemical regulation. We do not typically require chemicals to be tested for safety prior to going to market. That's been the case for decades. To kind of put it to perspective, there's about 86,000 chemicals that are on the registry in the United States. We don't know exactly how many of those are actively being used because the reporting systems that we have are really terrible. I like to look at the chemical registry as like the Hotel California, like you check in, but you don't check out. Once you're on the list, you're always on the list, even if it's not being manufactured anymore. So the 86,000 mm-hmm. is like a rough number. EPA did a voluntary tally, so to speak, a couple of years ago and they said, oh, there's only 46,000 or 42,000 chemicals actively being used. Either way, the vast majority of those have never been tested for safety. And there are 1,000 to 2,000 new chemicals that are introduced each year into the marketplace without safety data because it is not required. And so the assumption that the products on the shelf are safe is based on a false assumption that there is some regulatory body that's making sure and checking every ingredient and checking every product. And that's not the case. And it's really frustrating when people hear that. And it's also not that way in other countries. So in the European Union, they take a much stronger stance on chemical regulation. It's not perfect. They still have issues with chemicals in consumer products and in the environment, but they have a like no data, no market policy, which is like, if you don't have data to show that it's safe, you can't use it. Sounds like a good idea, right? You would think these are incredibly basic concepts and we don't enact them. And we have really limited safety data on a small number of chemicals. And I like to point out that the safety data that we do have is not necessarily reflective of 
what's actually happening in the body. And that's where we butt up against issues with how toxicology studies are conducted and whether or not they are looking at what's happening in real life. Do you think part of that movement is the consumer and consumer yeah. dollar? But yes, and I don't necessarily think that the consumer dollar is going to have any real impact on toxicology and the, that field of science. I think what the consumer dollar does is it forces industry to change in the absence of regulatory policy. And so because companies are going to do what is best for their bottom line all the time. They don't have our interests first. They have their shareholder interests first. The policy in the United States that we have that regulates personal care products was written in 1938 and has not yet been updated. So government moves extraordinarily slow in this area. And a big part of that is the chemical industry lobby groups that are trying to keep regulations as low as possible so they can just kind of do whatever they want. However, the consumer intervention of being like, well, I'm not going to buy that. I'm going to buy this instead does get the attention of industry a lot faster. And so we've seen consumer demand shifting the marketplace. It's really inspiring. Hopefully we're going to see some changes. I mean, I know it took us a long time, just as you compared it to tobacco earlier. It took a lot of time for that. So those of us who were older remember sitting in restaurants with people smoking. So I'm hoping that this will change in our lifetimes. Now, I know that you and I can talk forever about this topic because <laughs> there's so much to discuss, but I really want to focus here on the chemicals that have greatest impact for preconception, fertility, and pregnancy. And one of those class of chemicals are endocrine disruptors. Yeah. So endocrine disruptors are a class of chemicals. They're estimated to be about 1,000 to 1,500 that are identified as actual or probable endocrine disruptors that interfere with the endocrine system or the hormonal system. And I think a lot of people think of hormones as just being like estrogen and testosterone, but hormones regulate your mood and your digestion and your hunger and your sleep. Pretty much most of the things in our body. We owe it to hormones to do that. So the hormones, I like to refer to them as communicators. They're messengers and they're just passing signals and they communicate in whispers. They're very quiet. It's a very tiny amount in the body that's turning this action on or turning that action on or off or what have you. And these endocrine disrupting chemicals basically are able to slip into the body through inhalation, through absorption through our skin, through consumption if we're ingesting them, and they can masquerade as these natural hormones. And they're so similar in molecular shape and size that the body can't tell the difference between, say, a thyroid hormone and some other chemical that maybe is shaped like a thyroid hormone. Or the body can't tell the difference between estradiol and bisphenol A, which is molecularly very close in shape. And so what happens is we have this disruption of the normal, healthy process of hormone communication in our bodies. And that's sort of in a nutshell what endocrine disrupting chemicals are. And there's probably 
the most concerning. I mean, there's certainly other chemicals that have very acute health effects. If we're talking about things like lead or arsenic, right? These Mm -hmm. neurotoxic carcinogenic chemicals are certainly a problem, but the endocrine disrupting chemicals are so common. They're so pervasive. And I think that's a big part of why I think they're so problematic. I like that you say hormones communicate in whispers, because I think one of the misconceptions is that, well, but I'm just exposed to this really tiny amount of this chemical. Is that really a big deal? Yeah, well, that's why endocrine disrupting chemicals are so important is because they behave differently than some other chemicals. So the easiest way to explain this is First and foremost, yes, if our natural hormones communicate in whispers and that whispers, if we were to calculate that or translate that into like an amount, right, circulating hormones are coursing through our bodies at like parts per billion, parts per trillion, extraordinarily low levels. Okay. And so when we look at human biomonitoring studies or epidemiological studies that are looking at large populations of levels of chemicals in the human population, we're seeing similarly low levels in the human population. So if we have parts per trillion hormones coursing through our bodies, and that's what our bodies are designed to, it's the frequency that our system knows to tune into. And then we have similar in level of exposure to these endocrine disrupting chemicals. And we know that those chemicals can be bioactive, meaning they can have an effect on the body at those low levels. That's why this is so concerning. And the other fact is that the chemicals are not isolated. You don't have just one chemical in isolation exposure. This is multiple chemicals we're exposed to every day. Yeah. And when it comes to endocrine disrupting chemicals, and there's some research that has been starting to examine that, is what they see is that it's a cumulative effect. It's an amplification. So one plus one does not equal two. One plus one might equal five. So the level of hormone disruption or negative outcome in the presence of one endocrine disrupting chemical might be like this bad. And then a second one in and the results are actually way, way higher than anticipated. And so that's referred to as the cocktail effect. We don't know that that's not being measured within the field of toxicology. And so it's not reflective of our real life exposure and sort of the way it is. We're getting exposed to lots of different things chronically, not just once, every day, day in, day out, for years, for decades, for entire lives. And that's where we see most of the concern when it comes to endocrine disruption, because endocrine disruption really flies in the face of this whole approach to traditional toxicology. So I mentioned earlier, do we need to reassess how we've determined the safety of the chemicals that we have tested? This is what I'm talking about. Because we haven't looked at that low-level exposure to see what are the health effects. And so going back to the term adverse effect, which is what toxicology is looking for, they're looking for like acute issues. They're looking for changes in organ weight. They're looking for tumors, gross histological changes. They're looking for death, right? Cancers. That's what they're looking for. What they're not looking for are slight subclinical alterations in thyroid hormone that might lead to fertility problems or birth defect problems or generational effects or generational effects. They don't look at those because those are not the endpoints that toxicologists consider. Those are the endpoints that like an endocrinologist would consider, though. 
And then if you build even further down that line and you get into like functional and integrative endocrinology, they're looking at that subclinical range where they're like, yeah, your labs are normal, but I know there's something going on. And so there's all of that. And you talk to the millions of people that are dealing with thyroid disease or autoimmune disease or fertility issues or digestive issues. And I'm pretty sure that those would be considered adverse within the context of their lives. For someone who's really trying to focus on fertility and chemicals to avoid, where do we start? It's a good question and it's a hard question because the answer is it depends. So I like to first and foremost consider what somebody's priority. And if fertility is the priority, then absolutely we want to look at endocrine disrupting chemicals. So if fertility is the lens that we're looking through, first and foremost, it's going to be the big things. No smoking, no drug use, be generally healthy, right? Aim for that. Beyond that, it's looking at those endocrine disrupting chemicals, right? Because those have such a direct relationship to not only being able to get pregnant, but being able to sustain a pregnancy, being able to have a healthy fetal development. All of those things are really essential. And so Looking through the lens of endocrine disrupting chemicals, like I said, there's like a thousand chemicals. So it doesn't make sense then to say like, oh, well, I'm going to start with this chemical and then I'm going to move on to that chemical because that's not practical. Right. And so when your category is so broad, I try to look at it instead through how are we interacting? What can we do in our lifestyles? From there, filter that down another layer and say, let's just start with the things that are free and that are easy. Because a lot of people, one of their primary objections is like, oh, it's expensive. I'm going to buy all this stuff. And if I want to help eliminate the barriers to adopting different buying habits, we look first through the lens of like the things that are free and easy. The number one thing that I think everybody should do is just stop buying the scented candles, the Febreze, the air fresheners, all of those home fragranced products, those products contain, among other things, volatile organic compounds and benzenes and toluenes. And these are carcinogens, which are also just not great to be around. They're also utilizing phthalates, a very well-established endocrine disruptor. It's one of the most researched. It's a class of chemicals. There's many of them and they're found in fragranced products because they're used within the context of fragrances. They're used as an emulsifier or fixative. They're what allows your laundry detergent and your dryer sheet scent to linger on your clothes for like weeks, right? The more it lingers, the more phthalates that are there. This uh, practice of just don't buy these saves you money, right? Throw out the ones that you have and just don't have them in your home. The fastest way for chemicals to enter our bodies outside of an ejection is through inhalation. And these are chemicals that we're breathing in every single day all day, every day. I know that, it, and this is a little bit of a hard one sometimes because we love our home ambiance and like smells like peaches and cream or whatever. Do like a scent detox. I 100% agree with that. That yeah. was a hard one for me, actually, because I was one of those women that was addicted to all the plugins, all the sprays and 
to be honest, now I really can't even walk past the store in the mall that sells all these things. I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. But initially it's hard. And I think also one of the reasons it's hard, which is part of the reason companies do this, is because we have a lot of memories that are involved with scents. So, for example, your mother may have used or your grandmother may have used a particular laundry detergent And so now when your laundry doesn't have that smell, you're like, oh, I'm used to my laundry having that summer breeze smell. Yeah. And and that's part of their plan. Yeah. Our olfactory receptors live in the most primitive ancient parts of our brain. And that is also the area of our brain where memory and emotion lives. And that's why that smell is so evocative of memory. And it's used by companies to manipulate right? It's why Disney pumps the smell of like cinnamon buns or whatever it is through the park. It's why casinos would pump the scent of vanilla, which is like a universally pleasing scent into the gambling hall. And they noticed that the amount of money that people gambled went up. So like companies know that scent is so powerful. It is the strongest trigger of memory. I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in the late 70s. And so I was like a Cabbage Patch kid. And they had a fairy signature, like kind of powdery scent. And anytime I encounter that scent, even though I know better, I'm like, Cabbage Patch kids. Like it is just (laughs) a visceral, visceral memory. Also really bad cologne from the early 90s reminds me of like guys at high school. So, right. I'm yeah. Like, I mean, it's memories. <laughs> and also, I think there's an association with cleanliness with yeah. certain cleaning products. We may have remembered again growing up with pine sol or lysol, and that yeah. scent really just makes us think it's clean. And if it yeah. doesn't have a scent, maybe it's not clean. Yeah. Oh, well, clean doesn't smell like anything. Right. And, and the other issue here is a lot of people use these scented products. Because they're trying to mask a bad smell in their house. Well, go figure out what the bad smell is. <laughs> and fix the bad smell. Like maybe that's mold, which is a whole other topic. That would be like, I have a cavity, but I'm just going to not look at it. And then let it rot in your face. You wouldn't do that. And so you got to figure out what's rotten. One of the top things that's on my priority list is removal of fragrances. You know, just avoidance, so not purchasing things. And then it also is a biggie when it comes to fertility because of the exposure there and being problematic for fertility for men, I think, especially, and for fetal development, too. Plastics is another one that I usually talk to patients about. Can we talk a little bit about plastics and why that's bad? Yeah. So plastics are, which are found in fragrances, are also found in some types of plastics. Correct. Phthalates are a plasticizer that's used to make plastic soft and flexible. And BPA, which we are mostly probably all familiar with, is a plasticizer that's used to make certain plastics rigid and hard. So they serve different roles. They're not the only plasticizers that are used, but they're just the most common ones. If we're looking at like the molecular structure of plastic, the molecules are not really tightly bound. For example, they might be at something like glass. In glass, the molecules are as tight as they can get. They're not going anywhere. In plastic, you can move it, you can squeeze it, it will melt. That's just indicative of the fact that the molecules are not super, super bound. And what happens is these additive chemicals that make it more soft or more hard, 
will just migrate out. And they do this on their own without any interference. When they do it on their own, it usually happens more slowly. Let's say you go to a vintage store and you find an old lamp and you look at the cord and the cord is all brittle and cracked. Well, it's because it's 30 years old and the chemicals, the phthalates that were used to make that PVC cord, polyvinyl chloride cord soft, migrated out over time and it became brittle. We see this with old cars. So it does it without interference. With the interference, it speeds that process up a lot. So where we are interacting with plastics, and I really look at plastic not as the enemy per se, but plastic in contact with food is the real kicker here. I'm not afraid of plastic. I'm also not chewing on my glasses. I'm not, you know, putting right. my glasses in the microwave <laughs> and stirring my soup with them. So I'm not concerned about that use because that's often what happens. People are like, oh my God, everything's plastic. Right. We need to get rid of everything. We don't need to get rid of everything. We really just want to focus on plastic as it comes in contact with our food. And in particular, like we don't want to be heating our food in plastic containers. So Heat, oil, acidity, abrasion, these things increase the rate at which these plastic molecules, the bisphenols, the phthalates migrate out into our food. And we know this from looking at studies that measure this kind of stuff. When people see the words microwave safe on a plastic container, that doesn't mean it's safe for you. It means that the plastic won't melt and catch fire. That is what that means. Right. The great example you always use is the orange Tupperware. Let's talk about that. So the orange Tupperware container, which like everybody has one or a dozen of, right? Where you put something in it, tomato soup, pasta sauce, whatever. And then from that day forward, it was stained orange forever and ever. And there was nothing that you could do to get it clean. You could put it through the dishwasher, still orange, always orange, never get back to the way it was. The reason for that is because that tomato-based pasta sauce, tomato soup that you probably put in that to stain orange in the first place, tomatoes are acidic, it's usually hot, and there's usually oil. So I mentioned heat, oil, acidity, and abrasion. Well, you've got this like triple whammy, right? And so what happens is the longer that food is in contact and it doesn't have to have all three you can put cold tomato soup but it'll still do this but if you have all three it makes it worse and so what happens is the physical boundary between where the plastic container stops and the sauce begins gets blurred and the reason why you can't wash the pasta sauce or the orange coloring off of the plastic containers because it's not on the container it's physically embedded into the matrix of the plastic and so the inverse of that, like that's, yeah, when I was learning about that, I was like, that is wild and it makes total sense. The inverse of that is if the molecules are kind of opening up and expanding enough for pasta sauce molecules, these orange dyed, lycopene dyed oil molecules to work their way into the plastic, that means those plastic molecules are also ending up in your sauce. Yeah, exactly. So it's like marrying the two. Yeah. So an example of this is a canned tomato soup. Those cans are lined with an epoxy resin that utilizes bisphenol chemicals as a barrier between the food and the can. And those bisphenols leach. And there is some human studies that we're looking at like, hey, let's measure the levels of BPA in people's urine after eating certain types of foods that were stored in BPA lined cans. 
This one study found a 229% spike in BPA after eating canned soup. Part of the reason Crazy. is acidity. There's probably oil in it. It was also hot packed. So can, most canned foods are heat packed. So they're packed when the food is hot. And then time. So how long was it sitting in that can? You know the date that the expires, but you don't know the date it was packed. So has it been sitting in that can for six months already by the time you ate it? Has right. it been sitting in that can for a year? And so that's why we see some foods like that have big spikes. So in addition to really systematically minimizing or eliminating in all possibilities, the plastics in your kitchen, the next step within that same context is like, let's get rid of canned foods or minimize canned foods as much as possible. And plastics aren't just like your food storage containers. They're your spatulas, your utensils, your pasta strainers. If you have kids, the little kid plates and cups, lots of people drink out of plastic cups. We just want to move away from plastic in as many places as possible and look for glass, for stainless steel, for wood. We don't want plastic cutting boards. We do want wood cutting boards. People are like, bacteria. Plastic harbors more bacteria than wood. Right. Just does. So no to plastic in the kitchen. Yeah, I think that those are all wonderful tips. The main way we get, as you said, these chemicals into us is through ingestion, drinking, eating. And I think sometimes people forget that there's a lot of processing that goes into things before they get into a can, before they get into a container that we purchase. So any kind of convenience foods often will go through a lot of plastic tubing. And so we get exposure through that. Yeah. So phthalates are unfortunately common in processed foods. So I mentioned earlier that phthalates are used to soften plastic. And we think of like a PVC pipe as being like lots of rigid plastic, but your shower curtain is also made of PVC. And the difference between that rigid pipe and the shower curtain are phthalates. Phthalates make them soft and flexible. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at the soft and flexible plastics like the tubing. And this applies in the medical space as well. IV tubing can have Uh, phthalates hospitals are working to kind of buy out of that system so not have phthalates in their soft plastics but in food processing there's soft plastics all the time a little hose that the food travels through to fill the jar or whatever not everything in there is stainless steel even if you look in food service in the restaurant industry all the big plastic bins that they store the food in there are these uh, polycarbonate plastic that's bpa so You know, I'm not saying this so that people are like, oh, my God, I can't ever eat anything that was processed or I can't ever eat out at a restaurant. We just want to be aware of where are these exposures happening. And we we kind of flex our control muscles where we can and we learn to let go of everything else. The goal is not to get to toxins level zero. That's not realistic or possible, but we do want to minimize our exposures. A fertility example Um, There's a number of studies that look at the metabolites of BPA or phthalates in the urine of couples that are undergoing fertility treatments or Mm -hmm. IVF treatments. And they find that the ones that have the highest levels have greater issues. They have a longer time to conception. They have more pregnancy loss. And the people that are on the lower end don't have those issues or don't have as many of those issues. The people on the low end don't have nothing. They just less. I think that's really where we need to realize we're not going to eliminate 
right? We're not eliminating toxins. The CDC will say that 95% of people have most of these chemicals. And even if you go and spend lots of money on expensive tests to see whether you have, everyone has exposure. It's just trying to get you to that lowest quarter of people's exposure. So that's really, I think, the most important thing. Yeah. So going on from like, we're getting rid of fragrances, we're minimizing plastic. I think also simple things like opening our windows and taking off our shoes. These also don't cost any money, but can help with the air pollution and just what we're bringing into our house unintentionally. We can say no to cash register receipts or any kind of thermal paper as often as possible because that is actually BPA. It's used as the ink, so to speak, on those thermal receipts. And so handling those receipts means that we're being exposed to like free BPA. What I mean by that is within the context of plastic, I mentioned, okay, the molecules aren't bound, but they're at least held together. I should say they're not freely just blah. They're in a matrix and there are things that can pull them out. Free BPA just means it was sprayed on and you can just blow it off. Right. And so that is why that paper has a little bit of a powdery feel because it is literally just BPA molecules that were rubbing between our fingers Right. That creates that feeling. And so saying no to cash register receipts is a good way to minimize that. And for people that work in a retail setting that handle them, please wear gloves. Definitely. It's so important for the people that work in retail because, again, we're talking about what's the highest percentage of exposure. And that's in those who work in retail. And also, I think it's really important with the hand sanitizer use that everybody's using hand sanitizer with these BPA receipts and it's increasing the absorption of the BPA. Yeah, sure. Because that alcohol is breaking down that lipid barrier on your skin and is serving as a a sort of a door open to other things that we're being exposed to. So certainly saying no to cash register receipts, emphasizing organic foods is going to be important here because a lot of the pesticide residues even though they're little, right? There's just a Mm -hmm. really small amount. Those small amounts matter. We've made the case for that. We want to emphasize the consumption of organic foods as often as possible. It's not possible to do it 100%. That's okay. There's been about five or six studies that have looked at sort of these organic diet interventions where they'll put people on a regular diet, look at the metabolites, pesticides, found in conventional foods, switch them to an organic diet, look for those same pesticide metabolites and they drop by 80 to 90 percent in like less than a week and so that's avoidance that's like the beauty of avoidance it's very obvious if we don't put it in it's not in us right and so we don't need to worry oh my goodness i've been eating conventional produce for my whole life i'm never going to be able to reverse it these are things that within a few days to a week you can see dramatic improvement Yeah, I mean, we can't necessarily reverse the effect if they've already had an effect, but we can stop adding gasoline to the fire, right? Or we can minimize the amount that's coming in and and that can still be meaningful. And especially within that preconception window, it matters. What does it take 90 days or whatever for an egg to Mm -hmm. kind of move its way out? And so we want to give ourselves at a minimum three months ideal window is like six months to really start a practicing as much of that avoidance in that early first three months so that by the time you're in that second three-month window you've had a significant decrease and if people have other toxic exposures maybe they have heavy metal exposures that if somebody is going to embark on 
detoxification protocols or anything like that, that it happens way before conception so that we're able to kind of clear some of that stuff before the egg process kind of rolls out and we just, yeah. So, and the same thing for sperm. I was just going to say, sperm are generating all the time. So we just want to make sure that we're like, let's get the garbage out and let's make some clean sperm. <laughs> exactly. So this is for both men and women. All these things that we're talking about, they really apply to both. I know sometimes women tend to do this a lot, focus on themselves and not really worry if they do have a male partner, that their male partner should also be doing the same thing. I would say it's not even just women that puts this on ourselves. How <laughs> do we avoid overwhelm? Because that's always one of the main things for me when I discuss this with patients. I'm always afraid that I'm going to create this great amount of anxiety. They already are under a lot of stress. How do we avoid overwhelm? Right. The first thing is, one, take a deep breath. Recognize that this is a journey. It's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. I've been doing this for 10, 12 years, and I'm still oh, hey, here's something else that I should get. You know, like, oh, I've got to get a new bed. Let me make sure it's a better one. So it's a journey and just pick one thing. And maybe that one thing this month is I'm going to get rid of all the scented products. And then when I run out of my laundry detergent, I'm going to buy one that's better, right? So we don't have to throw out the things that we have now. It's not what we do on a single day that matters. It's what we do over time that matters the most. And I understand that when people are on a fertility journey, maybe they're feeling more motivated to speed that process up. Great if you're feeling eager to be like, oh, I'm going to get all this crap out so that I can not have to wait much longer or whatever. Then yeah, go ahead and do as much as you feel comfortable doing, but recognize that it's okay if it takes longer and it's not perfection that we're aiming for. And mm. as I like to say, we change the things that we can control. So we worry less about the ones that we can't. There's all kinds of stuff out there that we're exposed to that we can't really do that much about. And rather than become stressed out about that, which is also a toxic to the system and certainly a hindrance when it comes to fertility, is we just want to say, okay, I'm going to do the things that I can do and I'm not going to sweat what I can't do right now. Just doing something helps to shift us out of that space of overwhelm because overwhelm comes from not taking action. So if we can take small actions like, hey, this week I'm going to go into my kitchen and open the cupboards and I'm going to say, where's all the plastic? Let me start with getting rid of those plastic Tupperware containers. Maybe I'll move them to the garage and sort the nuts and bolts and in them, whatever. You can use them for other things. And I'm going to go get some glass containers or I'm going to go buy a box and mason jars and those are inexpensive or whatever. So we just want to systematize and then just start. Starting the process is, is the battle, right? It's half the battle. And I'm going to go back to what you had said a, a couple minutes ago about the fragranced items and how like you can't even be around them anymore. What I find to be fascinating is that in the same way that our, our food, our tongue palate changes after we get out of eating Fritos and Doritos and Big Macs and Diet Coke and all that garbage food, people who are on those diets, they don't think fruits and vegetables taste good because all of that food is hyper fat, sugar, salt. Mm -hmm. That's lighting up our brain, right? Excitotoxins that are like lighting our brains up like, it's delicious. And then we eat like a carrot and you're like, this doesn't taste like anything. <laughs> and so I get that that transition is challenging, 
But once you're over the hump and you start to taste the subtlety and the nuance of fruits and vegetables and you can appreciate that, you try going back to those Fritos and you're like, well, how did I ever eat this? This is just so salty. The same thing happens with our sense of smell, with the products that we use on our skin and our wash our hair with. That once we transition to these naturally scented products or unscented products, we start to appreciate the subtleties of other smells better. And we're like shocked when we go back. I thought it was going to go back. In all honesty, I can say now that I thought, well, I'm just going to do this right now while I'm on my fertility journey and maybe I'll go back. Because at the time when I started eight plus years ago, there wasn't as many good options, especially right. in the beauty world. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go back. But honestly, there are so many good options now. There's really no reason to be using products that are toxic. Yeah. So, yeah. In wrapping up, I usually like to focus on finding joy in our day-to-day. -day. What's something that brings you joy? Oh, geez. First and foremost, my cat, because she's adorable and I love her very much. And all animals bring me joy. That's always going to be my answer because she's my baby. My fur baby. My, my fur baby is my number one. And what joy do I extract from this heavy negative topic? It's that people are so much more receptive now than they have been. And it makes my job easier. There's so many more people that are leaning in to listen. And while the ship is slow to turn around, I'm thrilled and filled with joy to see more people opening up and having this dialogue with the clients or patients that they serve or with their families or with themselves. And I think that we need that. We need that really badly. So I get really, really excited. And it's why I'm able to have this conversation, which is dark and heavy, with a smile on my face, because that I'm able to have this conversation, right. that people will listen brings me joy. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're seeing the tides are turning, I hope. I hope yeah. we're going to see change. As, as you said, people are definitely more receptive. And so it, it is exciting to see that we're seeing some changes. Yeah, I, mean, I think it'll take a while, but it will happen. Thank you so much for being here and giving us all this wonderful information. Where can people connect with you to learn more about your work? They can go to my website, which is just my name, lauraadler.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at environmentaltoxinsnerd. Thank you so much again, Laura. Please follow Laura if you're not following her already on Instagram. She has so much great content. I learned so much from her over the last few years, so I really encourage you to do that. So thank you again, Laura. Thank you. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. Welcome, Josephine. You are a mindfulness and meditation coach something that happens often on the fertility journey once we think maybe this happens I'll be happy and then this happens I'll be happy mindfulness is awareness it's an awareness of yourself your environments everything if we have mindfulness awareness as the foundation for everything in your life then it touches upon all of those things if you're aware of how you're feeling you're going through IVF let's say you wake up and you're asking yourself these mindful questions like okay how am i feeling today maybe i wake up and i feel really sad 
I'm about to go in for some blood work and I don't feel good about it. Being aware of that, you can now at least know, maybe you can tell your partner, your counselor, your coach. You can also pull out your toolkit, whether it's a physical or a mental one. What can I do to boost myself up in this moment? Or maybe giving myself a timeout, a pause, so that I can just experience this and then shift to something else. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.